Welcome to Counterspin, your weekly look behind the headlines. I'm Janine Jackson. This week on Counterspin, news media coverage of taxes falls broadly into two camps. There are, especially in April, lots of news-you-can-use type stories, like NBC's Today Show warning viewers to be mindful of typos and not to be lazy about filing for extensions. Or NBC Nightly News noting that if you filed by mail, you might wait five to eight months for your return due to backlogs at the IRS. Taxes, in other words, as in, oh, well, what are you going to do sort of thing that all of us have to deal with. Then there are other disconnected stories about tax policy. Who pays, how much, and why? We've talked about that a fair amount on this show, and we're going to revisit two of those conversations today. Last April, we spoke with Emory College law professor and author Dorothy A. Brown about how, though you can scour tax policy and find no mention of race, our tax system still affects black people very differently in ways most conversation obscures. And in February of 2019, we spoke with economist Dean Baker about why the idea of raising taxes on the super wealthy makes sense to many mainstream economists and to the general public, but still faces a perennial headwind in corporate media. Two revelatory conversations about tax policy this week on Counterspin. Counterspin is brought to you each week by the Media Watch Group FAIR. In the United States today, the median white family, not average, but median, half above, half below, has a net worth, that means wealth or assets minus debts or liabilities, eight times that of the median black family. That's the same gap as 40 years ago, despite gains that black people have made in income and education and all of the things that you do to accrue wealth. So what's going on and what does it have to do with our system of taxation? In April of 2021, we spoke with Dorothy A. Brown. She's Asa Griggs-Candler Professor of Law at Emory University School of Law and author of the book The Whiteness of Wealth, How the Tax System Impoverishes Black Americans and How We Can Fix It. I asked her, first of all, to address the fact that although black people are underpaid generally and shuttled into work sectors that are underpaid, employment income, how much money comes in, is different from tax policy, though they are related. That's right. So, you know, how much income we have helps inform how much we owe in taxes. But what my research showed is when black and white Americans engage in the same activity, whether it's work, whether it's owning a home, whether it's getting married, whether it's paying for college, tax policies subsidize the way white Americans engage in the activity while disadvantaging the way black Americans engage in the activity. Well, so let's just get into that a little more. What are some of the ways that that works, that that happens? Well, we can start with what you talked about, with which jobs. So we know that there's occupational segregation, right? Some jobs 
are disproportionately filled by white Americans, and other jobs are disproportionately filled by black Americans. But there are tax subsidies associated with jobs. Think employer-provided retirement accounts. Any money that the employer puts in a retirement account, any money you put in a retirement account, is not taxed today, even though it's wage income. It will be taxed later when you retire and withdraw the amount. And presumably, in 20, 30, 40 years, when you retire, you won't be working, and the amount of income taxes you pay on that retirement amount will be less, right? right? If you were to take the money today, add it to your other wage income, you'd be paying higher taxes. So it's a big tax break. Well, what we know are jobs that are disproportionately held by white Americans are more likely to come with retirement benefits. But even when a black American is fortunate enough to get such a job, we are less likely to participate and contribute to that benefit. And if we are able to participate to that retirement account, we're more likely to withdraw an amount early that's subject to a tax penalty. So how does this happen? Research shows black college graduates are more likely to send money to their parents or grandparents mm-hmm. to help them pay for necessities, mm-hmm. whereas white college graduates are more likely to receive money from their parents and grandparents that could help them with a down payment for a home, pay for K-12 private school for their children, so that even if, miraculously, we were to find a white American and a black American making the same amount, we know that doesn't happen, right, because of race discrimination right. in the labor market. But even if we find that, the black worker, because their parents and grandparents suffered under Jim Crow, is going to be more likely to have less after-tax dollars because they're going to send some money home. Right. You know, Jeremy Greer from the Corporation for Enterprise Development told me, income helps you get by, but wealth helps you get ahead and allows you to yes. think about the future. And it's it's so critical. And if you don't have to think of it that way, well, then you don't think of it that way, you know? Um, that's right. You know, uh, and that's... So, okay, well, okay, that's just the law is, is what we yeah. would hear, you know? And yet we see corporations write tax law favorable to themselves. We see Congress carve out exceptions or offer rebates for specific individual companies. Like it looks like sausages being made. And yet we're somehow (laughs) disinclined to think that that corruption and cronyism might include systemic racism. Absolutely. And part of the problem is the IRS doesn't collect or publish statistics based on race. So people can walk around saying tax law is colorblind because when you go to the the IRS statistics, it has nothing up there dealing with race. In fact, I've been writing in this area for a couple of decades, and the typical white tax law professor ignores what I say or pushes back or marginalizes what I say because their response is, there's nothing in the code about race. There's nothing in tax law about race, mm-hmm. which ignores the disparate impact based on race. I mean, we've seen this in Georgia with voting rights. 
There's nothing in the Republican path legislation that's going to make it harder for black people to vote that says black people, we want it to be harder for you to vote. Right. But we all know that's going to be the impact and that that was the intent behind the law. So the notion that you have to have a law say we discriminate against black people before we can find the law actually discriminates against black people defies logic and history. And, you know, everyone, uh, everyone, I use the term loosely, but people agree that black people are behind are disadvantaged, whatever their explanation for that is. But then when it comes time to intervene to allow, not help, but allow to stop preventing black people getting ahead, it becomes a whole different conversation that's about the intervention and its unfairness. And I just wanted to ask you, why have previous policy responses failed to adequately address the wealth gap, and 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 then what sort of responses could? So you know we have a lot of research on the wealth gap, and we have proposals for how to address it. But part of the problem is you have the left and the right seeing different causes of it, mm-hmm. and I have quarrels with both. The left sees this mainly as a function of historical discrimination that it's brought into the 21st century, the right sees it as bad behavior on the part of black Americans, Mm -hmm. right? So the left gets it wrong in this instance. Yes, it was historical discrimination, but the reason why wealth doesn't work the same way for white Americans as black Americans today is because of choices white people make. So let's take homeownership. Most white homeowners live in neighborhoods with very few black Americans. That's how they like it. That's what the research shows. So progressive whites who live in neighborhoods with virtually no black neighbors are part of why homeownership builds more wealth for white Americans than black Americans. Because black Americans typically live in racially diverse or all black neighborhoods. And the homes are not valued as greatly as the exact same home in an all-white neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Why? Because white prospective home buyers don't want to live in those neighborhoods, so they're not valued as high. So that's not historical discrimination. That's 21st century today discrimination by white homeowners. Right. On the other side, we have the right that says, well, black people just need to act more like white people. We need to get married. We need to buy homes. I've already told you why buying a home isn't the ticket to wealth for black Americans the way it is white Americans, but getting married. My research shows that when white people get married, they're more likely to get a tax cut. How? Because the tax law favors married couples with one single wage earner. One person who works in the paid labor market, the other person who works at home. That couple gets a tax cut. Couples like my parents, my mother was a nurse, my father was a plumber, they made roughly equal amounts. They don't get a tax cut. And for decades, they paid higher taxes. So you have conservatives saying, black people, you just need to get married. And my research shows, well, when we do, we don't get a tax cut. So. Part of the road to a solution is really understanding the problem. And one of the key pieces that I make in my book is the system of America for building wealth is designed for white wealth. 
It's designed for how white Americans engage in their activities, whether it's marriage or buying a home, in a way that black Americans simply cannot replicate. And until we come to terms with our racist wealth building system, no solution is going to fix it. Well, let me ask you, finally, you've been working on this for a while, and you've seen the interest in the topic or even the belief that it is a topic um, shift. <laughs> yeah. uh, after George Floyd's murder, you say in this Bloomberg Businessweek piece from March, suddenly people wanted to talk about race and tax. I don't want you to burn any bridges with reporters, but I am curious, when you talk to media, where do you have to start? Do you find people disbelieving? Are they ready to see that this is real? And it doesn't have to be media, but just the general public. Do you feel like the moment's right to push this forward? I do. And I will say this. Post-George Floyd, the reporters who have called me have been terrific and have been in a listening mode. They have not been in an argumentative mode. Mm -hmm. I will say pre-George Floyd, white reporters that I've talked to, that I've tried to talk about race, have been very dismissive. And they're different people. Those people did not come back to me post-George Floyd, right? Okay. The people who came to me were all new, <laughs> new white reporters who I hadn't talked to before, who actually saw the moment and wanted to get better informed. So that's kind of heartening, to be honest with you. I haven't had the pushback. And I will say over the years, the audiences that gave me the most comfort were the general public audiences. Mm -hmm. They were hungry for what I had to say and curious and were listening and attentive. It was the white academics who didn't want to hear anything I had to say. So the general public has always been an encouragement for me in doing this work. We've been speaking with Dorothy Brown, Asa Griggs-Candler Professor of Law at Emory University School of Law. The book is The Whiteness of Wealth, How the Tax System Impoverishes Black Americans and How We Can Fix It. It's out now from Crown. Thank you so much, Dorothy Brown, for joining us this week on Counterspin. Thanks for having me. That was Dorothy A. Brown speaking with Counterspin in April of 2021. One in three GoFundMe campaigns in this country are for medical expenses, and one in five households have zero or negative wealth. And this is the same society in which there are also some people who can't remember how many houses they own. Inequality is a life-or-death issue, which makes it especially worrying that some people with media megaphones seem proudly ignorant of the basic mechanisms by which resources are distributed. And some of those myths and misunderstandings were thrown into relief in early 2019 when we saw a rather bold, for recent times, conversation about progressive taxation, occasioned by proposals from New York Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez among others. We spoke with Dean Baker, co-founder and senior economist at the Center for Economic and Policy Research. I asked him, first of all, to talk a bit about 
top marginal tax rates and increased taxes on extreme wealth in the wake of a proposal from Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez suggesting the idea of a top marginal tax rate of 70 percent, as well as wealth tax proposals from Senators Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders, which had been received by media as though they were ideas from Mars. The reaction uh, to both proposals has been fascinating, uh, both the uh, public reaction where there's clearly been a lot of support. People are saying, yeah, you have a lot of real rich people. Why shouldn't they pay more in taxes? But more so from the media and you know from some establishment politicians. So the reaction is, oh, here's flaky Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, you know, where she'd get off 70 percent. And in fact, that's the number that many of the world's most prominent tax economists have said. This is the maximum tax rate you could maximum tax rate in the sense maximum amount of revenue. And there was an article, widely read article, by Peter Diamond, who's a professor at MIT, and Manuel Saez, who's at Berkeley, both very, very prominent. Diamond won Nobel Prize, Saez, John Bates Clark Award, two of the most prestigious awards you can get in the profession. So these are people in very high standing, and they came up with that number. You know, and there were all sorts of qualifications. And reservations. But in any case, they didn't think it was ridiculous. So when you have a, a fresh uh, new member of Congress propose that, well, the media jumped on that like, oh, she's just being flaky. And in fact, it's a very reasonable thing to put on the table, whether that's the right rate. You know, of course, you could debate that. But it certainly was not a ridiculous proposal. And, you know, again, uh, Paul Krugman had a very nice piece where he's contrasting that with the Republican proposals to cut taxes on the rich, where they were saying that they would pay for themselves which was ridiculous, but that was treated like these are serious people. So it's been fascinating that there's been such a rush to dismiss these as kind of far-out proposals by radical leftists when they're reasonable proposals, which again is not to say that they're necessarily the best policy, but they're certainly reasonable proposals to put on the table and to be debated. Well, we read that Michael Dell, who has $30 billion or so at uh, the World Economic Forum, apparently said, name a country where that's worked ever, the 70% top marginal rate. Um missing something, uh, you could say. Yeah, of course, the, the, one of his co-panelists said the United States, because that was, in fact, the rate in the United States until uh, Ronald Reagan lowered it with his tax cuts in 1981. And if we go back a little further, it was 90% in the Eisenhower days. Kennedy had lowered it to 70%. So again, one could argue whether these are the best rates, but to treat this as a crazy uh, idea out of you know, far left field is, is just wrong. And, you know, some of the back and forth, because I, I was on Twitter with uh, Dell and, you know, there were others involved, obviously. And what, what I find most striking here, the Dell's kind of a, a poster child here, because what is Dell's expertise in this area? He's very rich, no doubt about that, but he obviously knows nothing about tax rates. I mean, again, we could disagree 70% the right rate, but to act like that's just impossible, we're going to see our economy collapse, that's nuts. He knows nothing about it. He just has $30 billion, so therefore he thinks he's qualified to talk about it. <laughs> well, it's good, I think, that we're talking about taxing extremely high incomes and wealth for all kinds of reasons. The LA Times' Michael Hiltzik was saying, you know, it helps move us away from this notion that wealth is self-made, you know, that these folks owe nothing to society and it disrupts the fallacy of trickle-down. But having said that, it does take the form of a give back, 
you know, you've got an absurd amount of money, so you should throw some back in the pot because that's the socially decent thing to do. You suggest in this recent piece for Truth Out that while that is not wrong, it's not getting to the crux, the bigger source of the rise in inequality. Yeah. So the point I made in that piece, and really I've made in much of my writings over the last you know, 10 or 15 years, is that the distribution of income is not something that just happens. It depends on how we structure the economy. And I would say the economy is pretty much infinitely malleable. We could structure it all sorts of different ways. And my favorite example here, just because it's so blatant, is I like to say, how rich would Bill Gates be if he didn't have copyright or patent monopolies on Windows software? So if anyone in the world could just start producing, mass-producing computers and copy in Windows and all the other Microsoft software, and they don't even have to send them a thank-you note, well, needless to say, he would not be one of the richest people in the world. He wouldn't have $100 billion. I'm sure he'd do fine. But, you know, the fact that someone like Bill Gates could become incredibly wealthy was because of how we designed that market. And it's pretty much the same story everywhere you look. Finance. Where would all these uh, Goldman Sachs guys be if we didn't have the bailout in 08 and we just let the market run its course? I mean, there's many other ways we subsidize finance as well. Corporate CEOs, they were always well paid. But if you go back to the pay standards of the 60s and 70s, they'd be getting two or three million a year, not 30 and 40 million. So we structure rules that allow people to get incredibly wealthy. And I really prefer that to be the focus both because as a practical matter, it's much harder to get the money back once they have it. I mean, there's all sorts of practical issues that people have rightly raised. You know, when Elizabeth Warren says, let's tax the wealth, well, they're not just going to hand it over to you. It's going to be hard to do. It doesn't say it's not something we might want to do, but it's going to be hard. And secondly, the political issue, if we act as though, well, you know, Bill Gates got that fair and square. We shouldn't take any of it back. If you go, well, we could have kind of structured it differently, and then Bill Gates won't have it, and then we don't even have to have this discussion. I wonder... Do you think it's a trap to talk about these things in terms of revenue, in terms of how much money it would bring to the economy? I read a piece by Vanessa Williamson from Brookings where she said that taxes on the very wealthy should be judged by their societal impact and not simply by their revenues, that it has to do with the fact that just having some people be so wildly wealthy is incompatible with democracy. And so we shouldn't get too hung up on how much money it would give to the economy to, to institute some of these changes. What do you, what do you make of that? I, I think it's a very important point. And I remember some years ago, there was a piece on the estate tax that was done by Alicia Manel, who's uh, now at Boston College. And she came up with some figure that we get a relatively small amount of revenue you know, from the estate tax. I'm saying relatively small. It's still substantial, but much less than if you just said, oh, here's how many rich people died and we tax it at a 40% rate. Here's what you, we, we get a very small amount relative to that. But she wasn't writing it as a critic of the tax because what she, the two points she was making, one is exactly this one. The part of the story is we don't want massive amounts of wealth to be handed down. So you get Donald Trump or his kid, you know, walking away with billions and suddenly having all this political influence. But the other is, Part of what they do to avoid the tax is do things like start foundations, like the Ford Foundation and the Gates Foundation. Now, those aren't my dreams. I mean, there's a lot of bad things I could say about the way those foundations are run. But the point is that's not altogether a loss for society because they do do some good things. So to act like, oh, they aren't going to pay the tax. They're just going to start a foundation that provides inoculations to children in Africa. Well, that's not a bad thing. So... To just look at it and say, okay, how much revenue are we getting from the tax? That is missing the point. Well, and then, though, going back to Michael Dell, 
he said, you know, my wife and I set up a foundation and we would have contributed quite a bit more than a 70% tax rate on my annual income. And I feel much more comfortable with our ability as a private donation to allocate those funds than I do giving them to the government. Well, I guess what I'd have to tell to Michael Dell, he, he still could do that. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But, but I think what people are saying is... The problem isn't whether that's true in real numbers. The problem is running a society on noblesse oblige, you know, that's... Yeah, no, we don't want to have to depend on, you know, I wasn't going to go into my criticisms of the Gates Foundation, the others, but yeah, we don't want to depend on their goodwill. I mean, people need health care, they need education, you know, all the other necessities of life, and it shouldn't depend on whether Michael Dell's, he and his wife are good people, and they're going to contribute to that. I mean, it's nice if they want to, but that shouldn't be what we depend on. Well, a poll from that pinko rag business insider showed that Ocasio-Cortez's proposal, the 70% top marginal tax rate, was more popular than the GOP tax cuts, uh, which you alluded to before. People don't even think that socialism is a curse word anymore, which removes a real arrow from some folks' quiver. But I think we want to say that none of these proposals working on pre-tax income, post-tax income, they're not opponents of one another as proposals, right? And and other things like raising the minimum wage could fit in there too. Um, I guess it just does seem like more ideas are on the table than we've grown accustomed to. And I wonder how we keep that window open and how we keep pushing for more. Well, it has been great that, you know, you have people put it on the table and there's been a good popular response. And I have to say, to some extent, our best allies in this have been the, the Republicans, the conservatives, because they've said things that are just so absurd. I mean, uh, I remember Scott Walker, the former governor of Wisconsin, was criticizing uh, Ocasio-Cortez's 70 percent proposal. And he's talking to his account. He's talking to fifth graders. And he says, so you do some work for your grandmother and she gives you ten dollars and the government takes seven of it. And he goes that and they all go, that's not fair. Of course, it has nothing to do with her proposal. She's talking about people get over ten million dollars. So over $10 million. And so I don't know whether Scott Walker literally doesn't understand a marginal tax rate or he's just being dishonest about it. But he publicized this. And needless to say, he got raked over the coals for it. Um, My guess is he won't do that again. But it has certainly pushed the window on how we could talk about these things. So in that sense, we don't all have to agree that a, B, or C is the best, or, you know, why I would say is we probably want a mix of A, B, and C. But in any case, it, it certainly expanded the, the window of discussion in a really positive way. We've been speaking with Dean Baker. He is senior economist at the Center for Economic and Policy Research. They're online at CEPR.net. And that's where you can also get hold of Dean's free book called Rigged. His piece, Progressive Taxes Only Go So Far, Pre-Tax Income is the Problem, can be found at truthout.org. Dean Baker, thank you so much for joining us this week on Counterspin. Thanks, Janine. Good to be on again. That was Dean Baker from February of 2019. And that's it for Counterspin for this week. Counterspin is produced by FAIR, the national media watch group based in New York. If you missed part of today's show or you'd like to hear previous shows, you can find shows and transcripts on FAIR.org. The show's engineered by Alex Noyes. I'm Janine Jackson. Thanks for listening to Counterspin. Counterspin.